There's this concept of beuls in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, where the saint who actually introduced Buddhism in the Tibetan areas had actually developed some sanctified hidden valleys as a refuge for uh, Buddhism when there are troubled times. And so these, these beuls are areas where uh, people find refuge. And if you take this idea of the beul of a hidden valley, uh, you can even take it to the level of a person. So you can say that you can go through your entire life without discovering your own little hidden valleys. So you don't even discover yourself. Welcome to the Postcard Travel Show, your invitation to join intimate conversations with some of the most extraordinary travel designers from around the globe. I'm Elizabeth Drolette, a former broadcast reporter turned digital producer. Raj is the founding director of Social Tours. He describes it as where social work and tourism come together in perfect harmony. Throughout our conversation, it was hard not to feel ignited by Raj's immense passion for his work. Raj is a man who wakes up excited about life. I left feeling inspired, not only by his words, but his thoughtful, dedicated, and determined action. Raj is a man who puts his money where his mouth and his heart is. Social Tours is Nepal's leading soft adventure specialist, constantly working to improve themselves within the industry and one of Nepal's first travel companies to work on a custom-made responsibility audit to ensure that they adhere to their own principles. Raj and his team envision a global community that supports social development through tourism and a better world for all. So let's just get into it. Uh, How did you personally become inspired to create such an amazing company as Social Tours? Uh, It all started with a little eye camp that I I had organized, uh, you know, way back in 98 when, uh, you know, I was working in manufacturing, manufacturing sweaters for H&M. And um, at that time, we had got a few travelers in from the UK who had done a cost plus trip, which means they paid for everything and had the best services that Nepal could offer. But they had also saved a couple of hundred dollars to do some social work along with it. And we used all that money to do a cataract eye camp in this beautiful valley, went out there and did a thousand checkups and 250 free operations. Uh, it was magical to see an old person come down into the camp, almost blind, and then go back with full sight in three days. That was a, you know, like a miracle, right? And uh, I was so inspired by that and so the power of travel. And so when the bottom fell out of the manufacturing industry, I just moved into this idea of social work and tourism and hence social tours. That's incredible. I, I can't imagine the experience of uh, seeing somebody be able to regain their sight. Like, talk about magical. It's quite amazing. I mean, in the mountains of Nepal, if you're uh, semi-blind, I mean, it's kind of, you're useless. Nobody has time to take care of you. You're pretty much left to yourself uh, and can make such a big difference if you are uh, sighted. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, and with Nepal being in a high altitude zone, the UV rays uh, out here means that more people have cataracts because they don't use sunglasses. It's a simple, simple thing, but... Yeah, that was going to be my second question, if that is something that happens often there. Raj, so that's back in what, 2002? Yeah, I started the company in 2002. And uh, yeah, it's been going on for quite a while now. 
So let's talk about the vision then and the vision now, because I, I mean, responsible tourism has had an incredible evolution. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one, because, you know, when I started the company, it set up with a little set of values. And I wanted a company that had actually got responsible tourism right at its base. You know? So everything was about being responsible as a company as, and uh, trying to make it happen was through, like human beings, a system of values you know, respect for individual, you know, business have to give back to society, all sorts of values. And then putting that into action one step at a time, right? And uh, now it is moving, you know, the responsible tourism thing is moving into more of a regenerative, transformational travel sort of space where, you know, what we are doing right now with experiences really transforms communities, uh, transforms the traveler, you know, makes them understand because over the years we've got so much experience in trying to deliver, we can actually create really transformational experiences and showcase the country from a very different light. So yeah, it's moving constantly and it's uh, it's a wonderful journey. So what makes social tours stick out from other mindful travel companies? Every, every company has got its differences, like individuals have differences. And I think it's our approach to how we approach travel. You know, we're very sensitive and mindful about how we develop experiences we try to make sure that uh, locals are employed. You know, there's more uh, contribution into the local economy. You know, I mean, this is one of the few companies in the world that doesn't vertically integrate, which basically means that, you know, we just run what we do much better and, uh, you know, over the years and not try to own everything in the value chain. So we don't want to own hotels. We don't even own a car right now, you know, and this is a conscious effort, uh, conscious decision to try and uh, make sure that the money is spread in the economy. And I think that is a, a big little, you know, decision that we have made. And it is putting humans over profit, let's put it that way. And I think that is, I think, where we stand out. I'm not saying other companies don't do it, but I think the iteration is slightly different in different companies. You, you don't own a car? I mean, that's a big commitment. The reason is because transportation is a very big part of the tourism value chain. You know, it is, you know, you have to pick up people from the airport, you have to take them into tours, you have to take them everywhere, right? And that is usually the first thing a company buys, because that is a big saving if you can own your own car and you can reduce the price because it's your own car after a while and all that sort of stuff, right? Which is what I learned in management school, which I'm unlearning every day. But I wanted the local transport operators to also make money because they're also part of the process. So if every tour operator starts having their own car, the transport operators have no reason to run. So uh, it is a, a conscious decision not to vertically integrate and own everything in the value chain, right? So no hotels, uh, no cars, you know, that sort of stuff. And um, over the years, we spend a lot of money on transport operators, but we don't own a car. I mean, there are positive benefits to it. One, I don't have to outlay a big amount of money for owning a car. Don't have to pay loans back. Um, don't get an old car that is spewing a lot of smoke. I can get brand new cars, you know, from the transport company um, and use better um, environment-friendly cars, uh, you know, when I conduct my tours. But if I had my own car, I'd get a rusty old car by now, which would be spewing smoke all over the place. And I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't have the mind to sell it. So, you know, I mean, it, it does come with this. So it does make business sense. But, uh, you know, the economies of scales work slightly differently. So it's a conscious decision not to, uh, be too greedy. What makes you so personally passionate about this and continue to be so passionate? 
I guess I'm just challenging the status quo on how tourism functions in uh, in the world, and you know, just trying to prove a point. Absolutely, uh, I think that's a common thread uh, among the mindful travel community is to do things differently. So, Raj, let's talk about your most recent tour, the Biles of Nepal, which is mind blowing. Tell me, tell me more about this. Yeah, this is a very uh, interesting concept. You know, Nepal is known for its uh, mountains and, uh, you know, its beautiful landscape. But a lot of times it's not known for its people. And I, I have a very big passion to try and show the guardians of the Himalaya, you know, and, and in, in their, their culture and their, you know, what they have to contribute to the world, right? And so this interesting concept is, again, related to this valley where the cataract operation happened. When I traveled there in 1996, actually, the first trek I ever did was in this valley. And I had noticed something really interesting in this valley at that point, uh, without knowing this concept of the Beul. I had noticed at that time that the Buddhists that are in this valley were actually doing prayers for the sacrifices that the Hindus were making in their festival. And it was a very interesting concept where two philosophies were actually counterbalancing each other. And I had no understanding of why they were doing it, except it was so unique that we designed a tour out of it. And it was one of the first tours that we developed, uh, you know, where there was this interesting philosophical balance that was going on, right? So then later on, I get to understand that there's this concept of beuls in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, where uh, the Padmasambhav, I mean, the, the, the saint who actually introduced Buddhism in the Tibetan areas, had actually developed some sanctified play, hidden valleys as a refuge for uh, Buddhism when there are troubled times. And they were so hidden that uh, even today, some are considered to be still there, but nobody has found it. And so these, these beuls are areas where uh, people find refuge. And uh, the idea, I think the hidden valleys are always a place which is difficult to reach in certain ways. So high mountains, difficult passes, but the valley itself is habitable. And then there's a certain lifestyle out there of being uh, following Buddhism, you know, uh, very well, being compassionate, you know, which is all Buddhism is all, all about and being very conscious of what you're doing. And for me, showcasing this has become a little trek, which is about uh, seven days into the valley, you know, approaching some of the uh, routes that were used earlier on, trade routes, which are now well-trodden. It's not so mystical and, you know, crazy, but it's still going into the valley. The lifestyle is still there. The compassionate uh, nature of the people is still there. There's great food out there. There's lovely stories of, uh, about living, you know. So it makes for a very interesting tour where it's a journey of discovery. And if you take this idea of the Beul, of a hidden valley, uh, you can even take it to the level of a person. So you can say that you can go through your entire life without discovering your own little hidden valleys. So you don't even discover yourself. So you can take that to, to different levels. And on the other side, if you keep on harping on the concept of the Beul, there's a chance that the communities will also come very proud of their heritage, right? Of the fact that it is a Beul and it is a certain lifestyle and they'll probably pres preserve it. And then we get into the regenerative part of tourism, the rege regenerative effects of tourism. So it's a it's a very powerful trip, I think. Um, and uh, you know, as we do it in these seven days, as people journey through that, it goes through hardships, it goes through trekking, long hours, but then discovering you know layer after layer of this valley, 
through the stories and through, you know, the lifestyle. And it becomes a really amazing discovery of uh, the area and of the self. That is so, I, as, as you're talking, I, it sounds so like that's not an easy task to facilitate space for a tr- transformational experience. And so uh, when you're saying these long hours of small challenges, like wh- what is the process within like the tour? So uh, really the, the the concept is to actually prepare the traveler by giving these uh, concepts out. Like, you know, when I tell you the concept, you also feel like, oh, maybe I can also go there and be good, quite good fun. Right. And so that's the first part, you know, giving an authentic storyline for uh, people to attach it to. And then, of course, preparing them for the journey and, you know, not just marketing it to them, but to give them the journey as it is. And people figure it out within that. And then, of course, ideally uh, on every trip, it depends on travelers if they're willing to do it or not. Every evening or so you do a sort of reflection of the day. And that is a time when you uh, talk about, you know, what happened during the day. And then you can also put perspective to it and also put in the local perspective into it. And that makes it really uh, wonderful. I imagine there's a lot of uncontrolled variables. When you think about it, like it's it, to put a group of people and you don't know what each personality and each intention of being there and if they're going to get along, if they're going to, what is that it space like? It, it's, it, it sounds confusing, but it doesn't really doesn't matter really. Um, I, you know, having conducted a lot of travels and leading people into the mountains of Nepal and, you know, into different areas, you discover that people like to be led. It's not not so complicated, uh, but you have to be compelling and you, you have to be knowledgeable and you have to have the right stories. And, you know, pe- people want that. That's why they're out there. They're, they're out there to have a good time. And if, if you really give them a good time, uh, they will appreciate it. You don't have to make it into hugging trees and activism, but, you know, you, you can make it really fun, but still a learning and, you know, transformative experience. And that's that's easily possible. And it's to do with the stories that are there in the area and bring it out with some sort of authenticity. I like this concept of fun. Can you talk about that more? <laughs> yes. I mean, um, you know, every trip is a combination of um, a little bit of hardship, uh, not too much. If you take it too far, then people hate it, but you just keep it a little balanced. And that is a point when people are uh, learning a lot. You know, if you have a little bit of hardship is the point when you learn a lot because, uh, you know, you learn about yourself, you learn about the place. You want more, you know, and, and stuff like that. And that is the time when you can actually do a lot of change, you know, bring a lot of change in people's thinking. And uh, so that's that's where it also becomes fun, because at the end of the day, people will remember that. Yeah, that becomes memorable because it's an experience. And Nepal is fun anyways, because, you know, you gr- see great views. Uh, you know, it's nice people, friendly people, lots of stories. So, you know, I mean, it's always fun. So. So, Raj, I was going through your album on Postcard. Tell me about the blacksmith story. Yeah, this is an interesting story that just happened quite recently, actually. Uh, post the pandemic, we had the area had a double whammy, actually. It had one of the worst floodings of maybe 40, 50 years. You know, an entire hillside, you know, had a landslide which blocked up a stream. And it uh, it just accumulated, the water accumulated until the point where the dam broke and created a massive sludge that, uh, you know, took away houses, took out the whole region, really. And uh, this little um, hill on the other side of the river was without any bridges, no road access, only choppers could take stuff in there and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we helped a lot, you know, in that area during that time, uh, also during the, you know, with the pandemic still raging on. 
But uh, eventually I got an opportunity to go there and, uh, you know, talk to a, a small blacksmith uh, village, <clears throat> which had a very interesting story. And the idea had actually come to try and see if the, their skill sets could be used into a project that we were working on sustainable uh, sourcing. But uh, it was very interesting to go there and ask them, so where did you guys come from? You know, they had this prime land out there. And so they told me that they came from across the valley in another valley, and they were invited by the people in this Beul uh, to come and try and help them, uh, you know, do agricultural tools, right? And uh, in exchange, they were given this land, large swaths of property, yeah, that people just said, you know, why don't you just live here? Because it's kind of, it's going to be nice for you to live here, and it's nearer for us to get our agriculture tools. And so now uh, they own some of the best properties in that area, and it was just given to them, just given to them. And I think this this comes from this sort of nature of people, you know, in that area that they were just happy to just give the land, and uh, you know, so now this uh, they live in complete harmony. Uh, you know, where uh, there's also this um, connection between them doing their agriculture tools for all of them, and but also owning enough land that they can actually feed themselves. And uh, the people up in the mountains, they, you know, they come and buy this. So there's like a nice uh, relationship that they have between each other. You can see that on uh, Raj's album on Postcard. Uh, I also was really interested in the Hinduism and Buddhism imbalance story you had on there yeah this is uh this is to do with that first trek i ever did in that area and uh it was it was really amazing i mean we had a really hard trek it was my first trek ever the first day it took us seven hours to reach anywhere and uh you know we reached almost at seven o'clock at night you know just stumbling into a lodge and uh going out there and just you know staying out there until midnight just talking and chatting about the area and just having fun and then the next day we traveled again another, you know, in that ridgeline into this beautiful village called Tarkagyan, where we learned uh, that uh, the locals were actually doing prayers, uh, you know, the whole seven days that the Hindu festival was also going for seven days where they were, you know, uh, which was going on. And I was like, but you guys are Buddhists. Why are you doing these prayers on the Hindu festival? And they said, well, the Hindus are doing sacrifices of goats on the other side. And so we're balancing that off here. And this was this amazing concept that I'd never, you know, heard happen between two philosophies anywhere in the world. It might happen, but it was super interesting to see that. And in a completely unrelated area, people were actually doing these, uh, you know, seven days of prayers in the, and dancing and whole nights of dancing and really enjoying themselves. But at the same time, with a very good intent to try and, you know, pray for the souls of the, of the goats that were sacrificed and by a completely different community. And this was like an amazing uh, experience, really. Uh, super amazing to see that. I mean, that only happens in the month of October, and we actually created a tour around that to try and experience this uh, and understand why people do what they're doing. Why did you think that was so important? And so I, I can tell how excited you are about this. What was most fascinating about that to you? Uh, because, you know, any any example of people helping people that are unrelated is kind of interesting. I think it's uh, it, it's something that doesn't always happen in the world. Yeah? People help people that they know. That's that's quite normal. 
But people helping people or, you know, a complete philosophy that they have no idea about is, is an amazing, amazing thing, you know, and it's, uh, um, for me, I find that really fascinating, you know, and I think uh, a lot of people do too, because it's, it's such a unique thing. So interesting. There was another story that I also wanted to talk to you about, and I'm going to mess up the pr- pronunciation of this, so forgive me, but I'm going to try anyways. Uh, it's the Punya Gautam, and I don't think I said that correctly, so forgive my Western accent, but uh, tell me more about that. Uh, this is a very interesting gentleman, and I hope he listens to it and, inter- and you know listens to your interesting variation of his name. His name is Purna Gautam. And way back, I think it's about probably 30 years ago, and you know, I might be inaccurate in there, whether it's 30 or 25, but uh, this gentleman was uh, a young boy who had just finished his education and wanted to be an engineer. So in Nepal, you have to do entrance exams, right, uh, to get into the engineering college, pretty much like anywhere else in the world. So they had to qualify for it. So he qualified and he had about, I think, a month or two to go and join the college. And in his free time, he decided to just uh, do a little trek and came into this valley. Yeah, came into this valley, went into one of the villages called Milamsigyang, which is quite remote even now. It still has limited road access. It still doesn't, is not connected very well by road. And what is one of the highlights of this tour, where he reached out there and he discovered this community who had never seen a person like him, right? Because he came from the other side of the valley. Right. And he was really fascinated. The first thought he had was these children who are shying away from me and running and hiding behind their moms really need education. So then and there, he decided that he's not going to pursue his engineering degree and he's going to do everything to set up a school right here. And he decided that and somehow, you know, managed to do it. And today his school, and he's still the headmaster of the school, is one of the best residential schools in that, uh, in pretty much the whole of Nepal, actually, in a remote setting where he is, you know, he managed to actually tell his story to people, managed to do it with the tourism community, got sponsors from Belgium, you know, from all around the world, managed to actually build a really nice school, um, you know, compete with the best of the best in Nepal and create a really good school. It goes to show that, uh, in a way, uh, Purnagotam found himself. Uh, you know, found his Beul, if you like, right? When he went into the Beul. So, and, and uh, you know, it transformed his life and he's still transforming other people's lives uh, right uh, where he is. How old was he when he did, when he did that? Uh, he must have been 20 or so, max, when he, you know, when he went, went into that valley, really. Wow. Okay. Tell me more about some of the other tours that you currently have. Oh, we have a lot of different tours. I mean, uh, you know, we, we do the standard tours too. Nepal is very known for, you know, people going into the Everest region, you know, people going into the Annapurna region. I mean, these are popular areas for trekking in Nepal, you know, mostly because we've got a nice little rock up there, which is the highest in the world, and everybody wants to go and see it, right? Uh, but the interesting thing out there is also that um, people do go out there and they think uh, everybody out there is a mountaineer or in tourism, but we like to showcase that, no, there are people with heritage. The, the Everest region is also another Beul, actually, of people who had come from Tibet. And uh, the, the word Sherpa, which is used a lot, in, uh, even in the English language, I think it's also made the dictionary now. 
um, is actually a community, which means people from the east of Tibet. So there were people who had come in from the east of Tibet and found the Beul in uh, in the heart, you know, in where the, the highest mountain is. And they settled out there where they found actually the tree line, which is currently one of the highest inhabited uh, areas in the world. So the trip actually showcases that more than, yeah, come check check out Everest, you know. I mean, that's what most people go there to do and to just take photographs of Everest and forget that there are people living there who have got a very deep rooted history and heritage. And, you know, there's a reason why they're there and the reason why they do things the way they do. And I think that is that is uh, also another trip that we do, which is showcasing that. I've also designed food tours, looking at uh, the food culture of Nepal, uh, taking people deeper into it, because we also want to use that as a regenerative process of, you know, preserving food, right? Because otherwise everybody is going to just eat pizzas on their trip. So, you know, you do want to keep the food culture alive as well. So in a way, because tourism, uh, you know, connects with people, it brings people together, it has demand and supply. Uh, it's a very powerful tool for preservation if you use it right. So even after the pandemic, we started working on another concept of sustainable sourcing where, you know, um, organic food, would be promoted, done in a really stylish, stylish way. So people start feeling that, you know, our local food is also modern and chic and nice, you know, and that is that is kind of important way to preserve agriculture and agricultural lifestyle, agrarian lifestyle in the mountains. And if you do that in an area where tourism is going, tourism can be used as the vehicle to actually protect that. Yeah, so I keep on developing new trips like that and uh, showing uh, Nepal in a different light focusing a lot on the people, really. The nature is always there. It's not going to go away uh, even after we die. But, you know, the people are more important is the way I see it. Do you still learn new things about that region after all these years? <laughs> all the time, all the time. I mean, we've got 130 different you know, ethnic groups in this little land uh, of 30 million people. And uh, they've come from all over. They've come from the, the Myanmar region, Indo-Burman people. They've come from Tibet side. There are people who have come from the Indian side. So all of this is a mix. And that mix is a fascinating mix of uh, cultures and uh, traditions and how we live. And, and that makes for discoveries uh, on a very regular basis, much more regularly than I'd like to actually. So in a way, you feel like a tourist in your own country, which is fascinating. But I, I personally believe that every country is uh, is pretty much like that. It just needs that uh, openness to actually discover all the time. Have you found your Bayul? I don't know. I mean, you know, that's the that's the interesting thing about the Bayul, isn't it? I mean, you never know if you have really discovered it. I've, I think I've discovered parts of what, what uh, you know, I want to do in life and stuff like that. If that is the Beul, then that's it. Yeah, um, I feel a little bit at peace when I have, when I do little, small, little interesting things. Is that the Beul? I have no idea. But uh, yeah, it's a constant search. And I think the concept of the Beul is a constant search, uh, you know, and, and that's the beauty of it. Absolutely. How big is a typical tour? Oh, very small, because uh, I like to keep it very personal. So um, a, a big size tour would be not more than eight people or 12 max if they are friends. If it's a mixture of people, I try to keep it low because uh, there is also this theory that uh, you can only remember seven names. And if you cannot remember the names of all the people on the trip, then it's kind of, you know, it's kind of impersonal and it's not so much fun anymore. 
I like that you said that. Uh, it, throughout this interview, it sounds like you really do provide a very personal trip uh, from start to finish. You said that there was a bit of a, a pre-interview process where you, is that where you define like an intention and then you get to know their story before they even get on the trip? And so when they get in the trip, you're like, you, you have a better idea of them? It's not an interview per se. I mean, as the people come into the country or even before, I mean, we're chatting a lot about the trip, but uh, in the beginning when people are still outside or overseas, I mean, it's mostly very logistic oriented, right? The, you know, on the trip, you know, where am I going? Where am I staying? What food am I eating? And stuff like that. And once that bubble is broken, once they get out of the flight, then it's a chance to actually know people really. And uh, then we have a sit down where we actually talk about the trip and then, you know, go deeper into it. And I think that is the process when we really start understanding what people really want to do uh, out of the trip and, you know, what what do they want to get out of it. And this is also a process. I mean, now it has been defined a little bit more uh, by the Transformational Tourism Council when you actually start asking people, why are you on this trip? What's the real reason why you're on this trip? And once you find out that, then it really, you can tailor the trip a little bit at a time to some sort of expectation that the person has. And I think that really makes that personal personal twist, right? Uh, you don't have to overly do it. It's not a major psychological exercise, but you know, it's just little tweaks that actually let people know that there is a personal element in here and that, that makes it really fun. I like the low key aspect of this because when we talk about some, when even using the word transformational sounds something like it just sounds so big, right? And that almost sounds intimidating. And so I like this this casual spin of like you know we're we're basically getting to know you and we're basically get, showing you the best of this land and we're and it's you know it's there and there's an opportunity for like. Uh, a transformation, but it's really in the hands of the the traveler, right? It's not, you know, it's not going to be forced upon them. It's that there's just an opportunity for this, but really you're in control of your own experience almost, right? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, we're not gurus by any, any way, right? I mean, we're just knowledgeable about the place and we try to make the best of it uh, by giving people an authentic experience and being authentic about being, uh, you know, making a good effort, right? And uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I, you know, and and you're right. I mean, a lot depends on the traveler. If they're open to it, they're not open to it. Where where their state of mind is, and we appreciate that. No, we cannot force and say, no, you're a bad traveler because you didn't transform yourself. That doesn't make any sense, right? So, uh, so you have to play with that. And I, and it's 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 very casual, really. I mean, it sounds like a bombastic concept, but at the end of the day, it's just about authenticity and you know, just being true to what you know and, uh, you know, being honest about it. And I think that's that's the value that we believe in. How do you consistently stay in line with your mission and values? Um, by keeping it simple is what is my short answer. I think uh, if you keep uh, values very simple and uh, easy to understand, then uh, you don't complicate yourself. If you make really bombastic uh, concepts, it becomes really difficult to stick to it. Right. It sounds really nice in principle, but it doesn't uh, it's very difficult to stick to it. So uh, keeping it simple with, you know, I mean, we've got a set of six values that we work with. And uh, and the topmost of it is uh, respect for every individual. So the traveler, the crew, everybody, the community, you know, you build it on respect. It is a very organic process. It is. Yeah. 
and and that gives it agility and agility is kind of important and uh, now we see that more more than ever that agility is important you know especially with cases like the pandemic or you know we had a massive earthquake and you know we get these landslides and all and if you're not agile you you create problems for yourself right so agility is kind of important and i think human nature is very agile and you know if you just play with it you just use simplicity and agility uh, you mentioned exclusive what do you mean by that um that you know i think exclusive would mean not necessarily expensive but you know it's 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 got uh exclusive experience if you like right i mean so if you if you want to go and see this buddhism and hinduism in balance that happens only once a year or if you want to go and dance with the shamans up in a mountain lake it hap- only happens in august yeah so that's where the exclusive side of it comes in so it doesn't happen all the time it only happens at certain times of the year or if you want to come rice planting in nepal it only happens at the end of june you know there's a rice planting festival so you come for that and uh, understand how rice is grown and you get involved get muddy and stuff like that so that sort of exclusivity will be something that i think we'll focus more on it sounds it sounds incredible i think that that's really what we're all looking for is that more in depth more um opportunity to be in a s- experience and not just feel like another number right be there and actually have the ability to be present so what a phenomenal opportunity to uh have that to have more of a custom more more space to experience yeah and i think it's happening more and more in the world and i think i i really appreciate that as well i mean back in back in the day we used to say it's a big niche but it's not the niche anymore this is the way to travel now you know and uh, i i'm so glad to see that the younger generation actually demands it as well because they say i, I need I need exclusivity. I need uh, more custom tailored. I need more experiences and I think uh that's a very beautiful thing that's happening in the world and I really appreciate that and I think it's just coming to fruition all the all the experiences that we have at this point. You know, and people will really appreciate uh, what we're offering. Thank you so much for joining us Raj. Again, that's Raj, founding director of Social Tours. If you have liked what you've heard today, please like, review, and or subscribe to the Postcard Travel Show, available on your favorite podcast platform. Travel far enough and you might just meet yourself. I'm your host, Elizabeth Drolet. Thank you so much for listening and safe journeys. Find more information at postcard.travel.